I was like, for equestrian purposes. It took me a second. I'm like, swimming? No, horses, people. <laughs> me, me, horses. I got to remind myself. Yes, equestrian purposes. Welcome to the Asian Sewist Collective podcast. The Asian Sewist Collective is a group of Asian people from around the world brought together by our shared appreciation for fiber and textile arts and our desire to see more Asian representation in the sewing community. In this podcast, we explore the intersection of our identities and our shared sewing practice as we create a space for Asian sewists and our allies. I'm your co-host, Ada Chen, and I'm recording from Denver, Colorado. Denver is a traditional territory of the Ute, Cheyenne, and Arapaho peoples. I'm a Taiwanese-American marketer turned entrepreneur, and these days you'll find me running my all-natural skincare business called Chuan's Promise. That's C-H-U-A-N apostrophe S, Promise, and sharing my marketing tips on my blog. Most importantly for this podcast, you can find my sewing at i.hope.so on Instagram. And I'm your co-host, Nicole. I'm based outside of Chicago, the original homelands of the Council of the Three Fires, the Ojibwe, the Potawatomi, and the Odawa people. I'm a Philippine-American woman, a lawyer by day, and a sewing enthusiast the rest of the time. You can find me on Instagram at Nicole Angeline Sews. Before we dive into this week's episode, Nicole, can you tell us about your current sewing project? I don't have one. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. We're we're sewing in uh we're recording during September. It's National Sewing Month in in the US. It's also my birthday month and I'm like batting 500 for birthday sews <laughs> since I started learning how to sew. I'm not doing anything for myself this year and I've been kind of like uh, yeah, I don't know. I think it's more when I have the free time. Well, what I have been doing is when I would have been sewing, I've been doing organizing stuff like clearing out my closet. And, and that is work. You know, it's not that fun, but it's like, yeah. well, I have the energy and the will. That's the most important thing. Uh, so I've with my free time, I've been doing a lot of loafing and then a lot of organizing. And I'm OK with it. Not really currently working on anything. What about you? I have some stuff that I had pre-cut but haven't gotten to. I've actually been doing – I started teaching oh, sewing. Oh, yeah. How's that been going? <laughs> Let me tell you, teaching sewing is exhausting. I bet. And I probably brought it upon myself because during – right after my first uh, linen knot top workshop, I actually taught a facial oil workshop. So they were kind of back-to-back, -back and it was a little hectic. So we've learned and we're – Allowing for more in between time, downtime between them, and even not stacking classes like that. But it's really, it's really exhausting, but it's really gratifying to work with both friends and, and just people like students who come in and enroll in the class who are interested in learning how to sew because they remind me of like where I was not too long ago. And the, I find that like it's just a little bit different in that like the people who opt into a class are very determined but they know that they need some sort of like additional help that you can't necessarily just get on instagram or youtube yeah and so it's kind of nice to be able to provide that and provide resources for them and answer questions i do find that people tend to get very excitable once the machine comes out like they're like oh no i've ruined everything and there's like proceed to have a, a small panic attack or oh no why is it like not doing the thing and like you know, getting over the hump, literally, when they're sewing. So it's been interesting. Um, definitely still learning how to be an effective teacher and how to speed up classes in a way that 
suits people who have different learning styles and have different learning needs, but also is productive. And so A, like I've been pre-cutting a lot Mm. for classes where I can, where it's not necessarily, you know, it's kind of like a free form. Like if I cut one angle here for a sleeve, it's not going to ruin, like you can still measure the rest of it and cut the rest of it in class. That's fine. And then it'll fit you. Um, But figuring out like how to make things faster and then also making samples for like new classes. So trying to figure out what like wouldn't need finishing aka not a woven sew a knit mm-hmm. <laughs> and what would work there so yeah it's been interesting I think we're we have more classes on the calendar definitely by the time this episode is out but throughout fall winter kind of the cold months here when people are like less inclined to be outside uh before ski season so yeah we'll see we've got grocery totes scrunchies headbands aprons probably some more garments at some point and then like open sew to like use the machine oh that sounds exciting to your point about uh (laughs) what did you say that the students are excitable when the machines come out (laughs) yeah weren't you like that when you first started i was i was like ah the world is ending this didn't do what it was supposed to do Ah." like but then i didn't have you or anyone else to say it'll be fine I just freaked out until I fell asleep. And then the next day I tried again. (laughs) You weren't like that? I don't think I was like, oh my God, I've ruined everything. Or why isn't it? I'd just be like, all right, well, we're just going to figure it out because we got to figure it out. Like, I don't know. It's not that I'm not excitable. It's, I think I'm just like, my reactions are a little more subdued, maybe. I am definitely high strung. (laughs) Like... (laughs) (laughs) The thing is that like one of the people that I taught did tell me after the class that they had ADHD. And I was like, well, had I known that you have ADHD, I would have structured this class entirely differently for you. Yeah. Like, um, And so I think it's like learning how to build a class that generally works for most people, mm-hmm. whether or not they have ADHD or any other, you know, learning things that I should factor in so yeah it's kind of like okay well you've got to have enough breaks and it has to be short enough so people aren't feeling like oh my god this is the longest thing ever and it's gotta like some people want to have snacks and then you gotta have snacks on a separate table and like it's a whole thing and I think I didn't think it would be that simple um but I definitely thought it would be more work than the classes I teach for my own like day-to-day business Mm -hmm. but uh, it turns out that you need a lot more planning, <laughs> I think, when there's a lot more activity going on in the class. Okay. And sharp, sharp objects. And- sharp objects and heavy machinery. They all asked me, they're like, how come you have mimosas at your facial oil class, but we can't have mimosas at the sewing class? And I was like, well, you're technically operating heavy duty machinery. Yeah. So. Seems a little self-evident, but okay. <laughs> yeah. Like if you were to sew at home. Have a glass of wine. Knock yourself out. Have some beer. I don't care. Here, though, <laughs> mm, no. <laughs> and I think my friend who owns the space appreciates that. Yeah, fair enough. The lawyer in me is like, liability. <laughs> Let's keep this a clean, clean class. 
Before we get started, here are the credits. So today's producer was Mariko Abe, our researcher was Cindy Chan, and our editor is Clarissa Volando. Today we're doing another episode on a garment with roots in Asian culture. We'll be talking about the Aoyai. Note that this is the pronunciation used by folks hailing from the southern part of Vietnam, whereas in the northern part of Vietnam, you may hear it pronounced as Aoyai. So for this episode, we'll be using the southern pronunciation. We'll share everything you need to know about this Vietnamese garment, its incredibly rich history, and more. A few of our listeners and members of the collective put in requests for this episode, so we hope you'll enjoy it. As Nicole said, we've released episodes on other Asian garments in previous seasons. So in episode 11, we covered the Chi Pao, aka the Cheng Sam. We also covered the history of the sari and interviewed two people about their sari wearing experiences in episode 19. And then in episode 42, we did a deep dive on the turno. So links to these episodes will always be available in the show notes. And you can find all of these episodes on the podcast player that you're using right now to listen to this. So what is the Aoyai? The Aoyai is the national garment of Vietnam, which literally means long shirt in Vietnamese. It's spelled A-O space D-A-I. And in its classic form, it's a form-fitting ankle-length tunic with raglan sleeves and side side slits up to the waist. This tunic is worn over wide leg trousers, either in a matching color or in black or white. The tunic itself is usually made of silk, frequently has fisheye darts, and uh, the fisheye darts are in a, are there so that we could add a little bit of shape to hug the body's curves. For those of you who are unfamiliar, a fisheye dart is a double-pointed dart that looks like a long, narrow diamond before it's sewn shut. The Aoyai may also have a tall standing collar and opens up diagonally from the neckline to the underarm on one side. Variations of the Aoyai have appeared over time, and currently you may find ones with a boat neck, a v-neck, or sweetheart necklines, and in these variations, the collar is omitted to accentuate the wearer's neck. In other variations, Aoyai may have shorter or bell sleeve shapes, and one can also choose to have their Aoyai fit more loosely. The tunic is sometimes shortened to knee length or made with materials other than silk. Since we covered the Chinese garment, the Chi Pao, in the past, we thought it might be good to note how the Aoyai differs from the Chi Pao. At first glance, you might think that the Aoyai's standing collar, diagonal opening, and form-fitting nature make it very similar to the Chi Pao, but they are different and distinct garments. Chi Pao are standalone dresses, and they're not worn over pants, so the side slits traditionally do not go as high as you would see in an Aoyai. Additionally, a Chi Pao is not raglan-sleeved, a raglan sleeve is a sleeve that extends in one piece fully from the collar to the underarm. So if you're familiar with like a baseball tee look, that would be usually a raglan sleeve. Chi pals also usually have a frog button closure while Aoyai do not. And a frog button closure, it consists of a braided loop and a button knot often made of the same fabric as the Chi pao or something similar in the same color scheme. The Aoyai is unique to Vietnamese culture and Vietnamese immigrants played a large role in keeping the garment alive after they fled southern Vietnam after the Vietnam War. The garment represented a tangible connection to their homeland and was celebrated in pageants where there were large Vietnamese populations. The most notable one is the one that's held yearly in San Jose, California. San Jose has the most Vietnamese residents than any other single city outside of Vietnam. Oh, I didn't know that. Did you? Yeah. 
They no. have great oh. food. If you love Vietnamese food, like I love Vietnamese food, you should eat in San Jose or the neighboring South Bay towns. Good to know. Next time. Next time. Well, right now seems to be a good spot to go back in time a bit to understand how the Aoyai came to be. For a garment that didn't materialize until the 20th century, its roots are in garments with much older legacies. Before the advent of the Aoyai, Vietnamese garments were heavily influenced by fashion from China, who frequently invaded and conquered Vietnamese land. Standard clothing at the time was a long, loose robe over a long skirt. For women, this garment was called the Aodotan, which means four-part dress or four-flap dress. Aodotan is spelled A-O space T-U space T-H-A-N. And side note, thank you for your patience while I'm learning how to pronounce these words that are due to me. <laughs> the Aodotan was worn by women for centuries before the Aoyai and typically by peasant women. It consists of an outer flowing tunic that reaches to the floor and is open at the front like a jacket. At the waist, the tunic splits into four flaps, hence the name, two at the back that are sewn together and two in the front that are not sewn together. They can be tied together or left dangling. The tunic is worn with a long skirt, a silk sash tied at the waist as a belt, and sometimes with a bodice underneath the tunic and skirt for modesty. In 1744, Vietnam was split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and Lord Nguyen Phuc Quoc, also apologies if I'm butchering any of these words, but we are trying. Um, this lord was the ruler of the southern kingdom and wanted to distinguish his land and people from the northern kingdom. So he decreed that instead of wearing a skirt like the northerners, they would wear trousers underneath their tunics. The top tunic was kept loose and boxy, similar to the Qing dynasty Tangsan, which literally means a long shirt, um, just like the word Aoyai. And this garment featured a standing collared as a nod to the Ming Dynasty, which was the ruling dynasty prior to the Manchurian invasion. This standing collar was maintained in the Vietnamese tunic. The Tang San itself is the Han Chinese version of the Manchurian Tang Pao, which the Tang Pao, just like the Tang San and Aoyai, featured a diagonal opening from the collar to the underarm and side slits for equestrian purposes, which honestly, reading this and visualizing it, I'm thinking of all the people who currently figure out how to bike with extra fabric. I imagine that getting on a horse is similar. Yes. Yeah. I was like, for equestrian purposes, it took me a second. I'm like, swimming? No, horses, people. <laughs> <laughs> me, me, horses. I got to remind myself. Yes, equestrian purposes. No so, blue jeans here. <laughs> no, no. And you definitely want something underneath. Well, I don't know. I, do, I don't equestrian a lot. So <laughs> what do I know? Don't listen to me. Anyway. <laughs> I did but learn. This, I do know an equestrian related sewing hack. Do it. Let me, let's hear it. Hit me with it. Okay. Apparently I heard this from Gabby who is at Lady Grift on Instagram, you can use a horse blanket as an ironing pad or an ironing cover. Like it is the same material and it's very warm and thick because it's used to keep the horses warm in the cold. You do have to cut it though because it is, I think she said it was molded. So it's curved to go on to the horse's back. <laughs> oh, interesting. Well, I have a friend who has a horse. And I think uh, 
I, I frequently ask her about. Maybe I'll, I don't know. I can't imagine she has extra <laughs> blankets lying around, but I could definitely use one after melting my uh, my cutting mat. <laughs> it's yeah. the three-piece one, and I melted the middle one, and so to replace it, I had to buy a whole new one. Anyway, let's go back to happier, more interesting subjects than me melting my stuff. <laughs> so... The Aoyai, the resulting garment, after changes were made by Lord Nguyen, was called the Aoutan, which translates into five-part dress or five-flap dress. Aoutan is spelled A-O space N-G-U space T-H-A-N. It's called a five-part dress because the tunic is made up of five pieces of fabric joined together. Two front parts, two back parts, and a fifth part located in the front to the right of the wearer. The tunic has side slits to the waist and a two-collar, a two-layer collar that hugs the neck. And this garment is worn by all genders. So side note, if you're struggling to picture the various garments we've described today, of course we've got you. In our show notes, we've included an illustration that shows the evolution of Vietnamese clothing over time. It's really cool. So shout out to our researcher, Cindy, for finding such a gem of a photo. The loose-fitting nature of garments that were worn in Vietnam changed greatly after the 1930s, and a key person who drove this change was an artist from Hanoi named Nguyen Gat Tong. He also went by the nickname Le Muir. Uh, Le Muir is a direct French translation of his surname, which means wall. He felt that clothing was not just a means to cover one's body, but a mirror to reflect a country's intellect. And he also felt that Vietnamese clothing for women at the time was too baggy and sloppy, referring to the Ao Du Tan and Ao Wu Tan, aka the four-part and five-part dresses. Uh, he just felt it was sloppy. I don't know, like passing judgment here. <laughs> so starting with the five-part dress, he reimagined the garment in 1934. He made it more form-fitting, loosened the tight sleeves, added puff sleeves, and got rid of the collar that he deemed useless. Initial public response to his vision was negative, with the general opinion being that the garment did not authentically describe Vietnamese culture or identity. Gat Duong admitted that his changes made the garment a hybrid of both Vietnamese and French cultures, that he took all of the beautiful and convenient parts of French women's clothing to replace the inconvenient and unappealing parts of the Vietnamese outfit. Ouch. <laughs> I get it. Like, I know what, the, what he was trying to go for. But it's worth noting that Vietnamese national identity was not yet fully established in the 1920s and 1930s, as most of Vietnam's history throughout time was a part of China. By the time that Gat Duong made his radical garment changes, Vietnam had been a French colony for almost 50 years. With Western influence permeating Vietnamese society, it was said that Vietnam was having a bit of an identity crisis. A wave of young adult women who advocated for personal freedom and self-expression over outdated beliefs would adopt his modernized tunic as a statement. Remember, since this tunic would accentuate their bodies, this was not insignificant, and this was at a time when women who wore white pants under their baggy five-part dresses as opposed to black pants would be considered immodest and mocked. Unfortunately, Gap Tong's involvement with what would eventually become the Aoyai ends there. In 1945, when the August Revolution took place, he was captured by the League for the Independence of Vietnam because his work contributed to the quote-unquote moral downfall of young women, and he was allegedly sent to a labor camp and eventually executed. 
Eventually, in the 1950s, the garment underwent even more change by two major tailors of that time. The puff sleeves were replaced by fitted raglan sleeves to prevent wrinkles under the arms and around the shoulders. Darts were added to the tunic to help it cling to curves even further, and pants were cut on a bias from fluid material, fitted closely at the hips and loose at the ankles. In the 1960s, the Aoyai continued to be adjusted and changed to incorporate looks that were all the rage in other parts of the world, such as the hippie look or miniskirts. Bright, psychedelic prints and knee-length Aoyais were extremely popular with city elites. Once the civil war between North and South Vietnam ended in 1975, the Aoyai all but vanished from public view for a period of time. The Aoyai is associated with foreign influence, colonialism, and decadence because it originated in the South and was popular in Ho Chi Minh City, which was formerly Saigon. Ho Chi Minh City was the former capital of French Indochina and the former capital of Vietnam prior to its fall in the Vietnam War. Thus, the Aoyai was considered inappropriate and impractical for communist laborers. At a time when recovery from the war was prioritized, it was frowned upon to use money and silk fabric for a luxury garment while so many people were food scarce. If aoyais were seen and worn, they were likely just for weddings and handed down or reused as much as possible. The hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese refugees who fled to the West and other parts of the world after the war left with few belongings, often just the clothes on their back. The displaced refugees built new communities but wanted to hold on to the life and culture that they left behind. Aoyai worn by displaced Vietnamese people became a symbol that preserved their culture even though they were so far away from their homeland. It's believed that Aoyai pageants were held to maintain a feeling of nationhood. It wasn't until the reopening of the country and its markets in 1986, as part of various economic reforms initiated at the time, that the Aoyai was revived as a symbol of the nation. Our researcher Cindy notes that the garment changes that we've covered so far are very similar to the ones that the Chi Pao underwent as both countries were exposed to Western influence. In the 1930s, both garments became more form-fitting, and then in the 1950s, darts were added to mimic the new vogue trend of a nipped-in waist. Both the Chi Pao and Aoyai were disdained during communist rule as a symbol of the decadent bourgeoisie and thus maintained only by the diaspora. Then, both garments returned to minor prominence in the 1970s and 80s as Western influence permeated their countries of origin. The Chi Pao and Aoyai experienced revival as a symbol of nationalism and are now commonly worn by service workers and others to communicate a sense of national pride. Unfortunately, another commonality that the Chi Pao and the Aoyai have is that both garments have been sexualized and have been a focus of Orientalism or yellow fever in Western media. The garments have also been appropriated by Western celebrities. The Aoyai, for instance, has been sexualized by being worn without pants. It is as insensitive as you can imagine. Wikipedia claims that Giorgio Armani and Prada have designed Aoyai collections in the past, and we tried looking for more reputable sources to back up this claim, but we were unable to find any. There were a few blog articles that briefly covered similar collections, and we also found photos from other designers' collections that could be connected to Aoyai. So listeners, if you have any sources on the Aoyai collections by Armani or Prada or any other fashion powerhouses, please share them with us. We would love to share them with the community. So on to the photos that we found. One of them is from the Emporio Armani 1994 catalog, and in the photo, there's a white woman with short hair carrying a naked toddler on her right hip. 
She's wearing what some people may consider it to be an Aoyai or Aoyai inspired. Um, it is missing the collar, but the tunic is a wrap tunic with ties at the waist and it goes past her knees and it's tight fitting at the sleeves and bodice. Plus, she's wearing loose matching pants underneath the tunic. We will also link to this photo in our show notes. I don't know about you, Nicole, but even though it's a black and white picture, it doesn't look like an Aoyai to me. It kind of just looks like a keyhole neckline top but long so maybe a tunic with a keyhole and a neckline no yeah no no <laughs> i i don't really i don't see the i see the very basic resemblance in 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 the shape mm-hmm. as in it's long and the t- the pants are wide i guess i'm interested in learning you know like why did they decide to do a collection in the first place, um, but with the limited, you know, resources available for studying those collections, I think it's tough. I don't know. Like, but there's so much why <laughs> so many- <laughs> in this photo. I'm like, okay, if you had shown, I, I wonder. Neither of us are of Vietnamese descent, so I wonder if I showed this to someone. We showed this to one of our guests who is Vietnamese. What they what they might think. So. Listeners, if you go go to the um, show notes, click on this and say, hey, do you, do you think they were trying to emulate an Aoyai? Um, I don't see it, Ada. You? No. Just no. Yeah. So re- researcher Cindy did dig up a relevant Ralph Lauren ready-to-wear collection, also from 1994. So what's going on in 1994, but designers were all on the same page as yeah. they often are. So it's possible that this collection and the Armani one were inspired by French films L'Armand and In Indochine. Um, my French is even worse than my <laughs> Vietnamese. Uh, Indochine, both of which were released in 1992 and set in French Indochina or Vietnam in the 1930s. In the photos of the Ralph Lauren collection, several models are wearing straw hats that are, sorry, I'm laughing. Keep it all in. Let's leave it all in. We were just talking about these straw hats. So go, so go to the show notes. They're cringe. To see what we're They're cringe. Yes. Um, in the photos, several models are wearing straw hats that are frequently associated with Asian culture. It doesn't really matter which Asian culture. People just... Asian. <laughs> not, not any of the different nuances. Anyway, there's... There's a whole thing about these hats for me anyway, but we weren't able to see all the photos in their full size glory since they're behind a paywall, but it seems like the hats are paired with some outfits that have standing collars, but no other supposed correlation to any Asian culture or garment. The one photo we could find that's full size, we think it might be Ralph Lauren's take on an Aoyai. I just pulled it up again. Go to the show notes. It's a loose tunic that goes past the knee, and it's made from a beige, olive, and maroon plaid fabric. It has a very short standing collar, diagonal opening, side slits up to the waist, and baggy sleeves that extend past the wrist. The tunic is paired with slim olive ankle-length pants, and of course is topped with that straw hat. We'll link to everything in the show notes. There's no information about the individual designer involved with this outfit or the collection as a whole also we're not sure if vietnamese culture was credited since the collection was created before internet usage became mainstream but definitely go check it out i think this is certainly the ralph Lauren collection is more representative of what i think we've been discussing as traditional aoyai but also if you look at the small pictures it's just a bunch of people in 
straw hats there's some standing co- i don't know i can't deal with the <laughs> straw hat thing i can't deal with it have you gotten your hands on our asian sewist collective labels they make the perfect gift during this holiday season for your sewing friends and fam and of course for you our original collection features sayings from previous podcast episodes like this was a panic sew and our newest collection is made for the sustainably minded sewists if you're not a bedsheet snob this collection is for you to purchase, please go to ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective. Your purchase goes toward helping this all-volunteer podcast keep going by helping with things like editing, transcripts, and publishing. Your support is greatly appreciated. But yeah, I don't, what do you think about this one, Ada, this plaid number? I can't, the hats. I can't get over the hats. I would hope, we, as we record this, it is currently Fashion Week in New York. And I would hope that we don't see anything like this on our feeds right now. I'm just seeing a lot of the early 2000s are back and so are ballet flats and my feet don't ascribe to that anymore. But I will say that at Fashion Week, there is a Vietnamese American designer behind Helmut Lang now. And they actually featured Vietnamese American author Ocean Vuong, the author of On Earth Were Briefly Gorgeous, in their work, both in like the t-shirts and the actual display of the runway and kind of the theming of the whole show, which was pretty cool. So there's my spiel. About 30 years later, we went from Ralph Lauren having some questionable, is this an Aoyai with some rice hats on it, to we've got Vietnamese American designers and creatives on the runway and making waves. So yeah, I don't know. I also have complicated feelings about Ralph Lauren as a designer and a brand (laughs) Mm. because I think I don't know about you but I think like many other second generation Asian Americans born in the U.S. in the 90s and 2000s like Ralph Lauren was one of those like it brands my mom and her friends would be all over their stuff and the little polo embroidered logo putting us in those clothes it was like if they could put us in one of those polos it was a status symbol they made it even if they'd found it in the macy's clearance section in the basement you know <laughs> like the brand yeah. screams ivy americana and the podcast articles of interest did a great job of kind of deep diving into the history of that look like ralph lauren of the 90s this period that we're talking about with this runway crawled so that j crew of the 2010s could run <laughs> i said what i said And I guess more recently, I've been doing some more introspection and reflection on the brands that I associate with my experience growing up here. And I think what makes me sad is that when Ralph Lauren was, you know, quote unquote, coming up, he actually changed his identity and his brand's identity to make it more palatable, right? So that people wouldn't question why he, of all people, was selling preppy clothing. So I totally understand that as a brand owner, but like the fact that nothing has changed in 50 years to make this less true kind of makes me sad. For anyone who doesn't know, Ralph Lauren changed his name um, to Ralph Lauren to be more palatable. And so anyways, with that out of the way, out of the way let's move on to the technical details of an Aoyai. <laughs> Historically, Aoyai were made in a silk brocade for the upper class and hemp for the lower class. And then, as we said earlier in the episode, modern era, quote unquote, classic aoyai are made in silk with a fairly drapey hand. Depending on its opacity, a lining might get added to that. Silk, charmeuse, chiffon, georgette, and crepe are commonly used. And if you want to learn all about the types of silk, check out our past episode from season one when we covered everything you need to know about this fabric. It's in episode eight. 
Modern Aoyai may use lace overlays on top of the main fabric, and the main fabric may be plain woven with a pattern, painted, or embroidered. Aoyai worn for weddings may feature traditional motifs such as phoenixes, dragons, carp, and so on. And certain colors are associated with appropriate Aoyai wear. Young women tend towards white and pastel colors, whereas older women will wear more vibrant and darker colors. Red Aoyai are usually worn for weddings and tet aka Lunar New Year, but you can easily find examples online of women wearing white aoyai for weddings too. There wasn't much we were able to find online on aoyai sewing techniques. For starters, we were only able to find two sewing patterns readily available online. One is by a company run by a white woman and most certainly not benefiting the Vietnamese community in any way. The other is available on Etsy by a Chipao Atelier based in Shanghai. So we'll still link to these patterns in case you're curious and you want to have a look, but if any listeners have better sewing patterns to recommend, please do shoot us a message. The lack of information and patterns for sewing Aoyai at home may be due to the availability of Aoyai tailors in Vietnam, as well as the ready-to-wear Aoyai that is readily available in Little Saigon communities. Do you remember, Ada, back in season one, we spoke with Nam? Mm Mm-hmm. And we talked about how he learned how to sew because his family did bespoke Aoyai in Vietnam and he used to help out, which was pretty cool. I and mean, what we go for it. Well, what we could find was that many wedding studios were able to supply both Chi Pao and Aoyai. Therefore, we can deduce that there are a lot of similar sewing techniques, such as forming the diagonal opening and fitting the bodice with the fisheye darts. Interfacing the collar so it'll stand up is another shared step, as is embroidery or generally requiring the maker to handle slippery fabrics. One key difference from Chi Pao is that Aoyai typically doesn't require narrow bias binding or making frog buttons from self-fabric. Yeah, I think when I see slippery fabrics, my immediate thoughts are, oh no, I don't want to sew with that, like immediate panic. But (laughs) I can appreciate really nicely made Aoyai from a wedding studio or as part of someone's special occasion outfit or, you know, as part of those pageants or even as, you know, if you're like Nam and you you are part of an Aoyai tailor business or family, I can definitely appreciate, I think some of them have shown up on reality shows before. Um, Hmm. So I, I can definitely appreciate some of those like Atelier Studios and having lived in a bunch of places with a large Vietnamese population, Definitely have seen pageants or at least events um, where people are wearing them and can appreciate them. Although I think I've seen a lot of, you know, poly chiffon, <laughs> for lack of a better word, because these people look like they are sweating. <laughs> oh, <laughs> maybe that's just here and because it's hot in the summer and the summer lasts forever. But yeah, if you get a chance to see any of these Aoyai pageants or folks wearing them for special occasions. Definitely hope you appreciate them. And now that you know a little bit more about the history, can appreciate more about the design and how they got here. I know I say this a lot on our podcast, but I didn't know any of this (laughs) before we recorded. (laughs) Well, and I would be one of those people that would mistake a chipao for an aoyai if you'd put it in front of me before this episode. Um, I I haven't lived in a lot of places where there is a robust Vietnamese community um, that that is I don't want to say vocal but that displays their culture in this way, and so I can, I 
can't think of a time where I've actually seen one. Uh, so this has been really eye-opening. And and I love anything that, any knowledge that really helps enhance the differences between our different Asian cultures. Like I said, you showed me a cheap out and told me it was an owl guy. I'd be like, cool, but not now, <laughs> not anymore. Um, and that's why, you know, again, you've heard me say this. I love this podcast for, for many reasons, but learning new things uh, is definitely one of them. And so I look forward to being able to spot these more. And you know what, listeners, if you have an Aoyai that you'd love to share with us, go ahead and do that. You can email us. You can send us a message on Instagram. We'd love to share your Aoyais. And that's all we have today about the Aoyai, a feminine garment worn in Vietnam and by the diaspora. It's a beautiful garment whose silhouette and changes over the time have reflected the varied history of its motherland. Indeed. And before we wrap up, I have some final questions for all of you. Was there something we missed that we should know about this gorgeous garment? Or is there another Asian garment that you think we should cover next? Let us know. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for joining us on this week's episode of the Asian Sewist Collective Podcast. If you like our show, please consider supporting us on Coffee by becoming a one-time or monthly supporter or by buying our stickers and sewing labels. That's right, we have merch. Buy the labels, they are hilarious. Your financial support helps us with overhead expenses and will allow us to give back to our all-volunteer team who works so hard to provide you with new content each week. The link to our coffee page is ko-fi.com slash Asian Sewist Collective, and you can find the link in our show notes, on our website, and on our Instagram account. Check us out on Instagram at Asian Sewist Collective. That's one word, Asian Sewist Collective. And you can also help us out by spreading the word and telling your friends. We would appreciate it if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All of the links and resources mentioned in today's episode will be in the show notes on our website. That's AsianSewistCollective.com. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us with your questions, comments, or even voice messages if you want to be featured on future episodes at AsianSewistCollective at gmail.com. This episode was brought to you by your co-hosts, Ada Chen and Nicole Angeline. Thank you so much to the other members of our collective who made this week's episode a reality. This is the Asian Sewist Collective podcast, and we'll see you next week.